0: Thanks for, for joining us. Ted Barassi from Symantec will be moderating the call today. Uh, Ted is a group manager over e discovery and information risk here at Symantec. Um, and just, just before I turn the time over to Ted, uh, I would ask that uh, those of you who are attending, in addition to muting your lines, would ask that you please hold your questions until Ted uh, opens up the floor for discussion. Ted's going to spend about the first 30 minutes or so here of the call asking questions of the panel to get us kicked off, but after that, he will open the floor up to those of you who are attending on the phone, and, of course, we would welcome your questions. So, with that, I will turn the time over to Ted Barassi to begin the roundtable with some quick introductions of our panelists. Ted?
1: Uh, thanks very much, Corey. Before joining Symantec, I was an attorney in the financial services industry where I managed discovery projects and uh, So my my role at Symantec uh, leverages that and and gives me the opportunity to work with many customers and other experts in the field. So I'm delighted today to be moderating uh, a panel uh, comprised of some true experts in the field, Um, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves, but today we're joined by uh, Jim Daly, who's a partner at uh, Redgrave, Daly, Reagan, and and Wagner, which is a a firm that specializes in e-discovery, uh, Greg Davis, who is a Senior Vice President and CIO at WebCore Builders and who has a tremendous amount of hands-on practical expertise in, uh, in, in managing discovery projects. And uh, last, but certainly not least, George Socha, who is an attorney and manages the electronic discovery reference model. So with that, I'll, I'll give each uh, individual the, the opportunity to introduce themselves uh, briefly And then we'll talk about the EDRM model
2: and then move into some questions. So, uh, Jim, if you could uh, kick off, please. Thank you very much, Ted. Uh, Yes, my name is Jim Daly, and I'm a partner with um, Redgrave, Daly, Reagan, and Wagner. We have offices in Minneapolis, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., and Kansas City. I'm in their Kansas City office. Uh, Our firm is also known as RDRW for short. We're a boutique firm, and we focus exclusively on the areas of e-records, compliance, reducing electronic records discovery and management risk and cost. We've been uh, in operation for the last uh, approximately three years. Before then, the principal partners, myself, mean Jonathan Redgrave, mm-hmm. uh, Chuck Reagan, and um, Lori Wagner were the e-discovery partners within our respective law firms, Chuck uh, and Bacon for myself, Jones Day for Jonathan, Redgrave, Pillsbury Winthrop for Chuck Reagan, and um, Figuring Benson for Laurie Wagner. What we try to do, obviously, is partner with um, both suppliers, such as uh, Semantic and others, but also with uh, corporate clients in trying to look at the demands of the new federal e-discovery rules, uh, case law, best practices, and try to look for opportunities and not just um, the challenges that that we face. what I bring to the table is a background in technology, a master's in information services, and what we try to do as a firm is combine that expertise with our complex litigation expertise to find practical solutions.
1: Great, thanks very much, Jim. Uh, Greg, would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself, please? Sure, I'm Greg
3: Davis, a Senior VP and CIO for WebCorp Builders. Uh, we are a large commercial general contractor. Um, we're in the top uh, 50 or so in the US. Uh, we are primarily on the West Coast um, and have major offices throughout uh, the West. Um, we build um, some of the large premier campuses uh, such as Electronic Arts, uh, Oracle, uh, Lucas Digital Arts. We also do all, uh, almost all the W and Starwood Hotel properties and a lot of the mixed-use uh, projects, LA Live uh, and so on. That many many people may have uh, heard of, and we recently just finished the California Academy of Sciences in uh, in Golden Gate Park. So we are um, extremely heavy user of uh, technology and electronic uh, information and storage, you know. and uh, we also are in a very litigious uh, industry. So uh, being a- in our industry, we are have the joy of the old uh, building methods, which was, we used to call a uh, design, bid, build, and sue. And it follows uh, just the industry as, uh, as a whole, and we also, uh, as you might imagine, have some human resources issues that happen at the uh, at the job site. so we are heavily involved in multiple aspects of litigation uh, <coughs> internally and externally and uh, desperately are the uh, kind of the feet on the street that are affected by uh, the federal rules and other uh, e-discovery rules and tools that need to we have to have in place uh, just to be able to Comply uh, and produce the information uh, not only for our internal attorneys and staff to understand the uh, understand our strengths and weaknesses in any of these claims, but also to uh, provide it to opposing uh, opposing counsel. So we're kind of the the trenches part of uh, the rules and uh, work very heavily, obviously, with inside and outside counsel to uh, do our best to comply with the uh, in the most uh, cost-effective and efficient manner possible.
1: Great. And Greg, if you could uh, just mention briefly, how much experience, how long have you been doing discovery, you and your team, dealing with these issues?
3: Uh, well, since we pretty much came with Web4, I mean, we've been dealing with different aspects for 15 years, and it's just gotten uh, more involved in advance with uh, electronic discovery and PDAs and other hard drives that are in hidden devices and so on and so forth.
1: Uh, so you've really had an opportunity to see the evolution of this whole area over the, the last Uh, several years, and most recently with the uh, Federal federal Rules Amendment. Um, Okay, George, uh, if you could uh, introduce yourself, and then um, once you're wrapped up with that, we'll move on to the DDRN model.
4: Thank you. I was an attorney in private practice at two different law firms for 16 years. In about 1991 or 92, I got pulled kicking and screaming into the electronic discovery arena but in 2003 I left the second firm I was at to form a one-person electronic discovery consulting practice I work with corporations, government agencies, law firms and service and software providers all helping them in some fashion make steps along the road in a positive way toward dealing with their electronic discovery issues. In two thousand and three, with a colleague, Tom Geldman, I started up the Sosha Geldman Electronic Discovery Survey, which is the leading survey on electronic discovery issues. And then in two thousand and five, again with Tom and as an outgrowth of the survey, uh, we started up EDRM, which then I think is the lead-in for us to move to the next slide. Uh, EDRM, or the Electronic Discovery Reference Model, was originally one project, now expanded into four projects, that we started up in 2005. We started it up because there appeared to be a great deal of confusion in the marketplace with respect to the, the, the fairly simple question of, or apparently simple question of, what is electronic discovery at a practical level. The diagram you see below is part of what the first group of participants, 62 organizations, came up with in that first project year from 2005 to 2006, and that's what we're going to focus on here. The purpose of this diagram is in large part to allow people to more effectively talk at a practical level about what electronic discovery issues they face and how they should go about dealing with them. It lays out a prototypical flow for electronic discovery. That's not to say that all electronic discovery projects follow this flow. They don't. Nor is it to say that every one of these pieces shows up in every project. That doesn't happen either but some significant parts about this diagram. First, there is a probably somewhat harder to see yellow triangle, which is large on the left-hand side and gets smaller as you move to the right. The idea is that if you go through an electronic discovery process in an effective fashion, you should get from a totally unmanageably large volume of data to an at least somewhat manageable smaller volume of data. There is a triangle then on the right, relevance, which should increase as you go through this process so that a higher and higher percentage of the materials you continue to deal with as you step through this process are relevant to whatever it is you care about. We have nine boxes here which represent the major steps in this process, two of them are bookends, which arguably don't even fit into the electronic discovery process, but have a very important role, each one in their own ways. There are then lines connecting those boxes. First, larger ones going from the left to right, indicating the general overall flow of activity, but very importantly, also lines going from the right back to the left, intended to indicate that at any step along the way you may need to return to an earlier step to expand what you did, perhaps to narrow your focus, perhaps to redo something. So the boxes, the first one on the left, information management, essentially this means getting your electronic house in order. The better you can do with this, the easier everything that follows will be for you. And the better you do at this, the less expensive and lower risk everything that follows will be. The next box, so that's one of our bookends, next box identification, this is really where electronic discovery as most people think about it starts. What you need to do here is figure out what matters. Where do I go for information, what custodians are likely to be important? What systems are likely to matter? Do I have geographical constraints, time frame constraints, and so on? To the extent you identify information, then you need to think about what you need to preserve. And preservation essentially means taking steps to ensure that the information you care about does not inadvertently get destroyed or changed. Preservation can be as simple, sometimes, as locking a computer in a drawer and being the only person with the key. But it can be much, much more complicated than that. Collection, then, is either pulling information out of the preserved materials, we have these two boxes in a column, or in some situations where the underlying systems are essentially auto-preserving, pulling information out of those systems or reading that information so that you can then do something further with that information, which takes us to the next column, processing review and analysis. Processing generally in the electronic discovery process means one of two things, and usually both things combined. One is the series of steps taken to reduce the amount of data that you need to deal with, Uh, deduplication, setting aside uh, items that you know you don't care about, perhaps because of their date range, perhaps because of their file type, perhaps because of specific signatures for those files that tell you this is something I don't care about. And then conversion, where necessary, of the information from the form in which it was found into some form that you can more readily use for whatever you need to do with it, which then takes us to the next part, review. If you were to resize these boxes based on cost, the review box would do a pretty good job of pushing all the other boxes off to the side. It is the most expensive part of the process. For most people, review means two things. Looking at items one at a time to try to answer the question, is this relevant and responsive? In other words, is it something I'm probably going to have to give to someone else? The other side in the lawsuit, a federal agency, the like. And second, does it contain information that's privileged or confidential such that I need to hold back a part of the file or perhaps all of the file? Analysis is a box you could easily spread across all of this. It, think of it as reviewed, kicked up to another level. It's looking at the content, perhaps to ask the question, is what I want to happen in this process really what is happening in this process? Perhaps to try to figure out what's the story. Akin to the old adage, follow the money, here it's follow the story, figure out what happened. Production, getting the stuff over to someone else, the other side in the lawsuit, federal agency, whatever it might be, four basic forms of production, hand them over as native materials, give over the Excel spreadsheet as an Excel spreadsheet. Near native, you're not going to hand over an exchange server, you're going to extract information out of the server and hand that over. Near paper probably the most common form of production today when it comes to electronic discovery, converting the electronic files to an image format, TIFF or PDF, extracting some of the metadata, some of the text, bundling that all together, and handing that over. Or what is probably still the most common form of production of electronically stored information, kill a lot of trees, print it to paper. Finally, Our orphan child bookend box presentation, the question here is what do you really want to do with the stuff that matters? How would you put it in front of an audience either to elicit further information in a deposition perhaps or to attempt to persuade an audience at a hearing, trial, settlement conference, things like that? So that's the broad overview of this diagram and of this process. And from there, I think we should move on.
1: Yeah, that was, a, that was an excellent overview of the whole process. What I thought we would do um, to sort of kick off the, the, the roundtable discussion is go back to that first bookend and focus initially on some of the challenges around uh, information management. And I think what I'll do is, uh, if, if we could go on to the next slide, uh, start off asking uh, Greg if you could, maybe describe uh, some of the challenges in the area around information management. Traditionally, you know, we see a lot of customers who are uh, taking more of a traditional records management type view of electronically stored information and ignoring uh, whole areas of content uh, simply because they're not considered business records. What is your perspective on that? How did you, in initiating your sort of your your ma- your program for managing electronically stored information? How did you how do you grapple with this whole area of of information management and, and how that uh, interplays with records management? Well, we pretty much
3: upset records management people for the most part. We we don't and we don't bother to try to classify the records. As far as we're concerned, from an IT standpoint, if the email exists, then it exists and it's in the system. To write rules and try to automate rules to eliminate um, certain things that we try to do based on generic rules, is uh, it was way too broad and we could not get it narrowed down to where we were comfortable with the um, not saving and purging of records. We are on the hook in our industry for ten years for litigation, especially when it comes to high-rise condominiums and um, those type of projects. So we, in essence, save everything if it's in an email record. If it exists somewhere uh, and it's important, then it's somebody has it, and if it's going to be detrimental to our case in some way, somebody has it. So for us to not be able to produce it or say that we auto-purged it uh, is uh, the risks of penalties and the risks of uh, losing a case or making us uh, look like we are trying to hide something or are way too high so even something like a lunch meeting may be construed as well that was the meeting we discussed the 10 million dollar change order that you said it wasn't approved and why you delete all records regarding our lunch so we save everything if it's between uh... the individuals on the project and our internal people and we have counselled people multiple times and told them that if you create it uh... in email it is a record it exists somebody has it and you have to live with that so be careful what you say and do that doesn't always work we still have people that make really you know huge mistakes and say things that they shouldn't say but the reason why we save it is again it's out there and if the other person has it and it's been emailed we can't control who forwards it and so on Uh, then uh, that record exists, so we account everything
2: as a record as far as IT is concerned. Uh, Ted, this is Jim. Yeah. If I could expand on some of George's uh, thoughts, um, as well as Greg's, I think one thing that has changed in recent years after December 2006 with the new federal e-discovery rule amendments is that there is much greater visibility with respect to all kinds of information that might potentially be relevant, not just your traditional business records, and Greg did a great job of drawing that distinction, but, but also there is, with the uniformity among the federal jurisdictions and now with the states adopting equivalent of the uh, federal rules, there is quite frankly awareness throughout the entire legal community and uh, what's happening is what we would call in uh in movie terms time compression things uh, including but not limited your your requirement to know what kind of electronically stored information you have to communicate early and often with your i t to develop a uh, if not an i t map at least a good idea of what you have that might be responsive um, I think of in terms of uh, what I call the Zen of Zubalake. Zubalake, obviously, is one of the landmark decisions in the e-discovery area, but I call the Zen of Zubalake communication, coordination, and compliance. And certainly, within each one of those categories, IT and legal have to work together and speak the same language. Legal, for lack of a better uh, constituency, bears the responsibility of being a translator between legal and IT, where often uh, simple words like or say archive, might mean completely different things to a, to a lawyer, to an IT professional, or to a records management professional. But I think what has been said about the usefulness of a model is, is very, very important so that we can be those effective translators. What was said about records management really being information management these days, I think is, is a key point as well.
1: George, do you have a comment on that?
2: Yeah. I, I can't
4: underscore the importance too much of recognizing that whether or not a piece of information is classified by someone as a record really does not matter for litigation. I mean, I've had record managers shouting at me, who are we, to seek information they've declared not to be records. But litigation is about finding information, and the information needs to be found regardless of whether someone else considers it to be important for some other reason. And, and as Jim said, it's not about just records, it's not about just email, it's all the electronically stored information out there, potentially. That's a huge universe, a huge problem, but you have to have that as your starting point.
2: Matt, yeah, this is Jim Daly. Sometimes it's helpful in drawing this uh, distinction between the records management community, the IT and legal community, to understand it in terms of an information management life cycle. Um, Back in the mid-90s when I first began working full-time in this area, I also saw a need for some sort of way of communicating about that entire life cycle of information because I was having this issue come up time and time again, well, it's not a record, why do we need to keep it? I think the bottom line is that relevant information cuz the courts care about the content not the container. It's the content that matters to them. You can you can easily see that in terms of records management with record schedules for keeping certain records for business reasons for a certain length of time. What we call um legal hold notices in the litigation or regulatory framework where you are looking at certain types of information is an exception that quickly swallows that general rule. And if in the perfect world we had no regulation, then a, a regular rent, records retention program with schedules for business reasons only would be fine. But unfortunately, in a global marketplace and where a litigation or regulation is a big part of that.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. And I think that that you know there, there's definitely a, a the, the retention management aspect of the left-hand box does play into to legal hold. Greg, how, how do you deal with this issue? What, what, what sort of preparation have you done to put your organization in a situation to effectively manage legal hold? Who are the players there? Um, how does legal and IT and, and uh, potentially records management deal with that particular issue?
3: Uh, yeah, this is Greg Davis. I, I think that uh, you know, Jim and George hit on a lot of what we uh, we do, and that is that legal and IT have come together to have joint meetings. And we meet uh, we meet quarterly, first of all, just to review current cases and uh, current case law and our policies and procedures and how we are handling um, retention and e-discovery, because this is a, quite a moving target. The federal rules and Uh, the FRCP and the things that the states are adopting um, is really just, it's a great framework, it's a great start to try to get everything more uniform, but it's really just a start, and it's a fluid movement. There are some broad terms in there regarding uh, turning over data in, quote, native format. Does that mean you supply the application? And there's still some very broad areas, and then there's very broad areas of uh, what is electronic storage and how broad does that go? For example, most of our copiers in your offices have hard drives in them. Um, Depending on the size of that hard drive, images and documents may be on there for months. And uh, so there are some, you know, this is going to be continually like case law is. Uh, It's going to be continually evolving and each case will Uh, there'll be some precedent-setting cases over time that need to be monitored so IT and legal need to come together to continuously be monitoring that and uh, we use outside counsel as well to help our inside counsel keep up with all of the the uh, moving targets that come and and then that being said when uh, we are presented with a legal case we uh, immediately have a meeting between the IT staff uh, myself and our records uh, electronic record storage person and we meet with them we frame the context of the e-discovery now usually before this happens we know that a case might be pending or coming and our legal team will use the semantic enterprise vault tool that we've purchased to actually look at the case and run their own mini e-discovery they want to know before they get into uh, arbitration or mediation or any kind of legal action they want to know how solidly our case is and they want to know where they stand there's uh any of these cases there's two sides to every story and uh you want to you know use your best cards you have to present your case and if you have weaknesses in your case you may not want to uh to pick at that issue too much so they use it internally to get a uh, a handle on the issue first to know uh, how they should strategize and that's a very important piece of uh, of it that saves them uh, us a lot of time and money and exposure and then, when the case actually hits uh, or prior uh, within that tool, there's just a checkbox that says anything that I've found in this search, uh, put it on legal hold, and it, uh, it cannot, will not delete or be removed, altered, or changed uh, in the system. So we utilize the uh, the Vault tool uh, extensively since uh, 2002 to do our best to comply with uh, uh,
1: with that. And George, do you th- is that a trend that you're seeing? Also, or are you seeing more and more companies? Becoming like WebCore, where they're really taking a proactive approach to managing information and preservation, doing more in house, sort of tech, technology driven uh, approaches? Or are you still seeing a lot of companies out there struggling with uh, these issues? The answer is yes,
4: both of those. I, I see a spectrum. Uh, at one end of the spectrum are corporations, generally very large ones, involved generally involved in a lot of litigation and generally where at least a significant portion of the litigation is high stakes, high risk litigation. To the extent that those corporations are otherwise ones that are inclined to bring capabilities in house. They have a large in house legal department, they have a large in house IG department, they seem to be increasingly inclined to bring these capabilities in-house as well. And where they try to do it by putting together a multidisciplinary team, drawing from legal, IT, records management, information security, human resources, and the like, and where they pull in as well, at least some of their outside counsel, those are the folks we seem to be having the best success at putting this together but as you run to the other end of the spectrum smaller corporations less litigation lower litigation costs and lower stakes maybe not even an in-house legal department maybe with a substantial uh, portion of their i t function outsourced those organizations are far less likely to try to pull these capabilities in house and they probably should not because they don't have the wherewithal to do that. They need to find someone outside who can spearhead this initiative for them and who can control the process following their general directions.
2: You no, know, it's interesting I agree with George's comment. It's interesting to note that some of the cases with the biggest sanctions uh, have involved not your classic bet the company case, but in many situations, things like um, an alleged unfair firing of, a, um, of an employee, so employment discrimination or age discrimination, it's not always your class actions or your mega cases that can result in very significant sanctions. Uh, we're seeing sanctions now being levied individually against in-house counsel as well as outside counsel. Recently, I've defended a couple CEOs and CIOs that have been sanctioned for uh, not obeying court orders relating to uh, e-discovery practices. So I, I agree uh, wholeheartedly that it is a sliding scale, and one would hope that this would apply less rigorously to uh, your Mons and Pa Corporation, but even there, there's benefit in having uh, the opportunity to use a model, a common framework such as EDRM, and there's a benefit in having an appliance or a, a set of hardware or software that you can look to either by licensing or through the use of uh, a hosting vendor or service where you can get the benefits of that risk reduction and cost reduction. You know, the point that Greg was making is a great one, and that is. You know, a lot of our clients are using tools like the eDiscovery Accelerator to help identify that key class of players, that key group of employees that are likely to have information that might be relevant. And so in terms of trying to decide who to bother with a legal hold notice um, and who to interact with for the collection phase, that tool can really help define the boundaries in a very reasonable way, as well as then mine the information when it needs to actually be harvested and, and reviewed. So, you know, the, the new federal rules, obviously, they, they mean now more than ever for all levels of the company and all sides of lawsuits involving big and small companies. We have uh, even uh, a greater uh, specter of uh, weapons of mass discovery we need to need to deal with
3: yeah and this is greg and i think that uh, a lot of these rules and a lot of the things are also being adopted by just labor boards and other civil types of proceedings or other things that people don't hear about that much in the news and you're seeing that those arbitrators of uh, of law that can wield tremendous penalties against companies uh, uh that people don't hear about you're seeing them adopt this more and more and expect that type of level of discovery to show up at very simple things like a minor uh, what may appear to be a minor overtime case or uh, a minor didn't take enough lunch break cases and those cases are being blown up and become mountain out of mohills if the companies and organizations cannot produce the uh, records uh... from those cases and those civil penalties can be quite steep and the small mom and pops have to really worry about that because they probably don't have insurance coverage for that and uh... It could bankrupt their small business by a simple overtime case so their their risk is extremely high uh, as they start using uh, all this electronic tools to help their employees in a small to medium business, they're the ones that are really getting hurt uh,
2: or have the potential to get hurt unless they take this stuff seriously. yeah, just a quick footnote. Um, most of the sanction cases over the last seven to ten years have involved unstructured electronic information such as email, and they've also involved situations where the corporations have lost credibility by making inaccurate or incomplete representations, often several times. So that lack of knowledge of yourself, that key component of kind of communication and coordination I talked about, and that translation uh, between IT and legal is is critical to the process. You know, having frameworks to help in that communication, unlike the EDRM model, is, is an essential part of the solution
4: this is george to to reinforce what jim said one of the ways i see that communication breaking down is where corporate legal and it are talking with each other and they both think they're saying the same thing and talking about the same thing but since the folks on the legal side often don't understand what the technology people do and vice versa you get major miscommunication so one case i was involved in about a year or so ago um, what ha- part of what happened is that the plaintiff law firm said to the defense law firm, we want forensic copies made of these drives. The law firm then transmitted that to the in-house counsel. The in-house counsel said to the IT people, make forensic copies. And the IT people said, got it, we'll take care of it. But the copies the IT people made were not forensic copies. They captured active files, but they did not capture anything else. And this miscommunication did not come to light until, I think, about a year and a half later, at which point there was nothing to do to remedy or correct the problem that had been created. And all sorts of difficulties ensued from that that could have been avoided, if the two sides, the legal and IT sides, had done a better job of communicating with each other and if each had understood the shortcomings of what it was understanding and what it wasn't understanding, was able to do and not able to do.
3: Uh, This is Greg. I'll just add what we've done is we uh, have two uh, or actually three standard models of computers. We actually have spare hard drives in stock in our IT group. Uh, that are imaged for our corporate image for each of the three different models. And the minute one of these things hits, we pull the hard drive out of that laptop immediately or the desktop so it can't be booted up. We replace the hard drive with an imaged one, and off it goes to a forensic lab. So we don't even mess with it ourselves anymore. We just pull it and keep the person productive by sending their hard drive off for a forensic image. So having
2: that program with the spare drives, uh, it was critical for that. You know, Another example that expands this risk of... Lack of communication or lack of effective communication is a situation I was just involved with a couple weeks ago where a multinational corporation wanted, wanted to move a data center located in Germany to a place in the United States to consolidate operations. Okay, it made sense from an IT perspective, but no one thought to ask legal about it. And sure enough, those that our multinational corporations are subject to all sorts of different regulations, including the European Union's Data Protection Act, which prohibits the processing or transfer of information unless it's under certain circumstances with certain protections. And there are penalties up, up to including criminal and civil liability uh, for individual officers. There's the potential for debarment from... Uh, doing business in the entire company. The rules are very, very strict. And with the European Union flexing its muscles, uh, looking at itself more and more as the United States of Europe, there's more, there are more and more both criminal and civil actions being taken. Well, in this particular case, unless, if that had not been caught as part of a, an audit and assessment that we were doing of their IT uh, infrastructure, that could have led to significant uh, issues And the problem is, um, either one side or the other does not know what they don't know. So unless you have that kind of multidisciplinary um, standing group, not ad hoc, but a standing group such as the one Greg described, you're not able to react and respond to those sorts of uh, initiatives or identify issues. You're not able to take into account the impact, the cost impact downstream. Um, and the risk impact downstream of adopting emerging technologies like corporate wikipedia's which a number of corporations have corporate blogs um, use of second life which is a virtual kind of reality uh... environment for things like job fairs and virtual meetings use of e-rooms and other collaborative technologies without having that kind of culture uh... with top-down management support for an ongoing review of how all these three parts fit together you're uh, you're looking for the logic of failure, where you squeeze the water balloon at one end, creates an even bigger problem at the other.
1: Yeah, I'd uh, I'd, I'd like um, for us to to continue this discussion, and also um, maybe uh, talk a little further about some of the international amplifications since we've got uh, participants here who are not from the U.S.
2: Yeah, one one of the traps for the unwary. This is Jim Daly, is that for corporations that have a large amount of consumer touch worldwide where personal information might be captured from the consumers uh, or think uh, think medical trials in the pharmaceutical realm. Um, that's where in particular um, care needs to be taken both in terms of how the information is stored and how it is even searched and sorted because processing even though it's, it is understood exactly as George mentioned in terms of going through the EDRM model in the United States, processing under uh, the European and uh, as well as uh, Australian, Canadian, and Japanese Data Protection Acts includes any kind of segregation, sorting, storage of uh, touching uh, of information, any sort of operation with respect to that information, and not just what we might think of in terms of um, uh, deduplication, filtering, um, and, and the like. So the the parameters are quite broad in terms of what's prohibited, and in terms of the transfer, there are even greater restrictions. It can only be transferred to a to a, uh, a country that has equivalent data protections. And the U.S. has been deemed by the European Commission as to not have uh, equivalent protections to the European Union, and and uh, one has to rely upon. Uh, the safe harbor uh, provision, uh, but even that is difficult and cumbersome to try to deal with to allow for transfer of information from a European country, for example, to the United States for the purpose of even responding to discovery requests ordered by the court. This is big tension. I call it a catch-22 going on right now, where Europe is is um, clinging to its data privacy and protection as an inalienable human right, and U.S. courts, federal courts are saying, well, you know, uh, we don't care if it's a human right, if you want to do business in the U.S., you're subject to our jurisdiction, then that information, if relevant, needs to be able to come over the U.S. to, to be dealt with in our judicial system and uh we're uh we're we're at on the brink of some major tension there uh, i'm i've i've been uh, pleased to be co-chair of the um, Sedona working group on international closure and privacy this month we're coming out with a uh, a a white paper on dealing with this cross-border conflict issue uh, of e discovery between different nations and uh, uh you know uh, i guess stay tuned because uh, just a few months ago, a French attorney was uh, convicted of a felony or, um, for not complying with the EU directive in trying to gather information for use in a U.S.-based lawsuit.
4: Now, with that said, this is George, with that said, um, there's a pattern uh, that I'm not going to defend, and I don't know how to explain even. Uh, We're in the process of gathering information for our sixth annual social government survey. And as part of that, we talk with services and software providers and um, with consumers, corporate and law firm. In discussions I've been having with services providers, an astonishing large number of them have been telling me that they routinely are able to bring information back from not just the U.K., but France, Germany, uh, Asia-Pacific countries, Latin American countries, no matter what legal prohibitions in theory are in place, and they're able to do this, they say, because the attorneys involved in the U.S. and in whatever other country we are talking about managed to enter into an agreement whereby essentially all these privacy restrictions can be bypassed. As I said, I'm not defending this practice, but I'm certainly hearing that it appears to be fairly commonplace.
3: Uh, from an end user standpoint, uh, George and Genesis Greg, we've run into uh, a kind of a similar issue that touches the edge of this, and that is uh, remote automated backup. Uh, We have agents on a lot of our servers and and laptops that actually remotely back data up, and there are issues with the remote backup data companies that if the user is overseas or traveling in certain countries, where is that data being stored, and then is it being brought back to the U.S., and where are those third-party companies storing our backup information that we consult with? So that is also opening up a lot of these broad doors as to – the privacy, uh, credit card records, HIPAA records for health, and so on, and where those records are being backed up with
2: third-party backup solutions. Yeah. My sense is that there's probably widespread ignorance on the part of European employees as to what kind of personal data of theirs within the meaning of the EU directive, and that's a much broader definition than we would think of here. So it's not just limited to health information such as we, what we would regulate in our HIPAA. It's not just related to credit card information or Social Security information. It's much broader than that. For instance, I was, in, uh, I was in the Netherlands last week, spoke at a records management conference involving corporate representatives from a number of different countries. They were quite interested and somewhat alarmed that, that information is being taken over the U.S., for e-discovery purposes, without going through certain channels, they, you know, a few comments were if our employees knew about this, there might be a widespread outcry. So it may just be a matter of time and awareness before these issues uh, uh, completely come come to a head. I, I think the important thing is to be aware of what those risks are, so you can calculate those risks as part of your overall exposure realizing that there is no easy answer to this dilemma of data privacy on the one hand versus full and searching discovery in the U.S., uh, you know, which is uh, probably the only country in the world where there is such broad discovery uh, on the other. Greg, uh, you mentioned a few minutes
1: ago, and, and we're, we're getting close to the bottom of the hour here, but you, you made a very interesting point which I thought would bear uh, having a, a quick expansion on which was that you are seeing the notion of sort of broad discovery of electronically stored information and some of the principles embodied in the Federal Rules Amendment being applied in other non-U.S. civil litigation contexts? Can you can you talk a little bit further about that? And then, and George, also, if you you know if you're seeing that as well, I'd be interested to get your perspective on that too. Uh, it,
3: it was in the U.S. that we're seeing it, but we're seeing it with uh, labor. Boards, uh, union hearings—you uh, know—we're seeing it propagate down. That—that uh, that is the framework that they're referring to now. That this framework has been established that they're using for bringing information to those hearings, which have a far less uh, burden to prove uh, than than the courts for uh, leveraging fines and, and other things. So we are constantly involved in uh, all kinds of. Uh, Civil procedures, whether it be building permits, whether it be uh, um, uh, other other aspects of our cases, whether it be labor boards, whether it be union boards, and so on, and they, you know, they're uh, they are using the FRCP as their as their framework. So we're starting to see their broadening of discovery and expecting companies and corporations to present this information that they would expect you to have and the excuse of well we don't have it anymore and well we can't find it uh, we don't know if that, that exists and so on is not flying and uh, we you you will lose I mean they will and their burden of proof again is far less than than the court so um, it just makes it even more important in our in our minds to have the proper tools prepare for this, understand that it is part of doing business today and keeping abreast of all of the changes in, uh, in the discovery, because it is a moving target like George uh, and, and Jim uh, alluded to, and it's very, very important uh, for, in my opinion, for companies to uh, to take this very seriously.
4: Uh, this is George. There are two aspects to that, one narrower, one much broader. I am seeing state courts, where they do not yet have guidance from the um, state equivalent to the federal rules often looking to the federal rules for guidance and along with that the state court systems are rewriting or looking at rewriting their rules at least many of them and many of those are using the federal rules as a basis the broader point though is that the federal rules changes really are reactive and intended to reflect the best practices of what was you know that were already in place and those practices in return reflect an underlying need that that runs through all of this and and is why we are not going to see this area disappear attorneys involved in lawsuits investigations anything like that and other investigators similarly situated need to find the facts. Historically, we went three places. We sucked information out of people's heads, depositions, taking statements, things like that. We looked at tangible objects. We're still looking at the rivets from the Titanic. And then we went to paper because that's where people recorded things. Well, now things are recorded in much greater quantity than ever on electronic media of some sort and often recorded only there. So if, as someone conducting an investigation, you're going to try to find the facts. You need to go more often than not, probably really virtually all the time, to some form of electronic medium to look for some form of information stored in an electronic form. And for the moment, at least, the federal rules provide the best formalized set of guidelines for uh, a. a of an overall process within a litigation context.
2: This is this is GM I, I agree with George I you know certainly whoever is judging our conduct whether it be a private litigant in in a case a judge in that context whether it be a regulator whether it be a prosecutor looking at obstruction of justice charges uh, for not keeping proper financial records they're they're expecting that we know the facts and the sad reality is that particularly in any organization of any size, of any duration or length, no one person or even small group knows what all the electronically stored information is, let alone where it's located, let alone what's active and inactive, uh, versus what's legacy and not reasonably accessible and what it would cost to gather it up and, and deal with it and process it and spin those tapes. No one. No one knows that information. That information hasn't been gathered. It hasn't been part of the culture. It's part of the strategic inflection point where we uh, lost track of records management as a function when it came to electronic information. And because of that fact, you know, we have, number one, created a situation where with this time compression under new federal rules and this need to... Be uh, prepared for meet and confers early on where you're describing what kind of systems you have and what kind of data you have, and, and you need to be prepared to put up an IT witness to talk about your electronically stored information. Um, there's not enough time to catch up unless you try to get ahead of the curve. You won't know the facts until you do that preparation. So, and, and then that not only creates a risk, but it also Prohibits the opportunity, which I think is a is a major benefit of Georgia's model, and that is to say, at every uh, juncture along that model, there are opportunities to save money and streamline costs and effort. And unless you uh, unless you are able to map those out by knowing your systems, you'll avoid the uh, you know you'll have increased risk of incarceration and no return on investment. So you'll be You'll be turning ROI on its head, as it were, and you're not going to be in a position to make lemonade out of lemons. You know, I think one of the good news stories here is that with the proper combination of tools, hardware, software, certainly Enterprise Vault, eDiscovery Accelerator are um, you know top of the pack in that regard. You can actually save money, not just on the IT side in terms of single edged storage. Not just on the records management side, in terms of creating an atmosphere for uh, uh, soon to be um, a more regularized classification and categorization of documents, but as well on the legal side, in terms of reducing that funnel that needs to be reviewed, as, and and also in terms of reducing the amount that your own attorneys need to get their arms around in often duplicate, triple cut, and worse systems. Um, that uh, only kind of replicate the problem.
1: I kind of hate to cut it off here, but we have actually uh, gone past the bottom of the hour. Um, So I wanted to just quickly thank uh, our three panelists for a very interesting discussion, which I wish we could continue, and I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to continue at some later point. Corey, do you want to uh, say some closing words and
0: um, wrap this up? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ted. And uh, echoing Ted's comments, thanks to each of the participants of our panel today. I mentioned at the top of the call that uh, that this virtual roundtable has been recorded. Um, We plan to make that available early next week. And so if uh, any of the attendees to this meeting are interested in hearing that, uh, sharing it with others, please let us know. If you have uh, additional questions for any of our panel members or for uh, our moderator, Ted, uh, please contact either Andy Ryan at Connect PR or myself. And I believe that uh, you see there on the last slide our contact information. So, again, please do contact us with any other questions for these folks or um, for a copy of this roundtable discussion. Um, And with that, I will say thanks and goodbye.